Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by returning guest, Angelica Wong, coming to us from Taiwan. Uh, Angelica has recently joined the Decouple team um, and will very shortly be releasing um, our new Decouple Substack. Um, we haven't fully come up with the name yet. It may be Dispatches. We're going with Decouple Dispatch. I think Decouple Dispatches or Decouple Dispatch. Either way, I think it sounds good. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So looking forward to that uh, new product offering and uh, Angelica as a correspondent. Um, but today, um, we both read a book. Um, which I think for obvious reasons was enticing to us. Um, and we're going to discuss that book today. Angelica, what's the book? The name of the book is How to Get Big Things Done. And it's by Professor Bent Fluberg, I believe. Sorry if I got the pronunciation right. <laughs> F-L-Y-V-B-G-E-R-G. -E I mean, I, I as, as my dedicated listeners know, uh, I think Finnish names are the ones I struggle with the most, but um, Danes are, Danes are kind of related, I guess. Hopefully I haven't offended anyone. Um, yeah, so this uh, book certainly has been making the rounds. The marketing has been pretty good for it. And uh, hearing that you just read the book, I thought, I thought let's let's get into this. And don't want to steal any thunder from uh, Bram Neufeld's uh, Decouple Reads. That's our Decouple Book Club. Um, this may end up being one. Um, but anyway, felt urgent, felt like we should get to it. So Angelica, um, why don't we start off with, with some kind of well, I was going to say gut reactions, but maybe kind of a broad overview is is uh, in place. I'll let you decide. Well, when I first read the book, um, I was so excited about, about it when I first heard about the book, because this is exactly the kind of uh, topic I think needs to be discussed. And um, especially since we're so interested in nuclear. And the book started off really well. I'm just going to give you my, my rundown, you know, as I read it. Um, I thought that um, he was going into some good examples, was very readable in the kind of Malcolm Gladwell kind of vein. Um, but then I realized that uh, his conclusions are just, just seems really, um, seems really shoehorned in there because he gives you all the projects, the big projects, right? The whole thing about this book is how do we build big things? Why do some big projects succeed? And some fail, most fail spectacularly. That was a very good point. Um, so one of the examples he gives is um, contrasting the Sydney Opera House, which I didn't know this. It was a mega project that went way over budget and it was a, just destroyed the career of the architect that uh, built it. Um, why was that a failure? And why was a Guggenheim just as crazy a building by Frank Gehry, why was that such a success? And even though it, it looks utterly crazy, both buildings are absolute masterpieces. Um, why was one um, a success in terms of construction, the other a failure? So that I thought that example was really interesting. I learned a lot. But fast forward, um, the, the conclusion of his book is basically you have to build things in this modular way. That's basically like, one brick at a time, and that's why solar is good and nuclear is bad. And I, I'm not just just not seeing the through line between the how he started the book and his conclusion. Yeah, yeah, 
I agree. I mean, <clears throat> it's obviously a pretty technical topic um, that should be of broad interest, um, not just to policymakers and project managers and and the like. Um, you know, and they do make it re- relevant, I think, to more of the lay public discussing what is the biggest infrastructure project of many people's lives. If you're lucky enough to be a homeowner, you know, home renovation. Um, he also talks about uh, Pixar as a studio. Um, you know, I guess identifying these outliers like Frank Gehry, right, who delivers these fantastical buildings, bizarre shapes. I mean, just Google the picture of the Guggenheim. I mean, I hadn't appreciated what a crazy building that was. Um, but I think looking at the outliers of, of who, who's done it well, Pixar, like basically every one of their productions has been a smash hit. And there is a reason behind that. And of course, I'm drawn to it because I talk ad, ad nauseum about the nuclear secret sauce. I'm fascinated by this technology, which is it requires incredible excellence, human organization, um, collaboration between industry, government, regulator, et cetera. Um, when it's done amazingly, it's a beautiful value proposition and delivers for generations. Um, and so I was hoping to gain some insights um, in my quest uh, to further understand the nuclear secret sauce. And I have to set, say I was a bit let down. Um, the book is based upon the Flevberg database um, in which he's apparently gathered information and stats on 16,000 mega projects. And the results are pretty shocking. I mean, um, the majority go over budget, the majority go over time. And when he combines together over budget, uh, over schedule and the value, did it actually deliver on the value? Um, something like less than 1% actually fulfill that criteria. And in terms of delivering on the value, maybe I should just give an example, but um, the California high-speed rail um, experiment, I think it's supposed to link up San Francisco and L.A. Um, in the end, it's been such a boondoggling fiasco. They're basically building a railroad to nowhere, doing the first you know, 100-kilometer leg, and it's going to be functionally useless. Um, so those criteria I thought were very important because even though the Sydney Opera House, um, which um, went something like 500% over budget, um, was just this huge boondoggle ultimately, you know, has delivered an enduring value to the city. It's an icon. You know, the tourist uh, boom has probably been huge over many decades. It will probably pay itself off in terms of those cost overruns. And I think that's, you know, it's a point I made on Twitter comparing, you know, calling Vogel the uh, the Sydney Opera House of Nuclear. Um, Vogel, while, you know, being, uh, you know, a, a boondoggle financially and, and by schedule over its 80 years, it's going to be a blip. Um, so, you know, th- those were those were you know what drew me into the book and maybe what turned me off a little bit about it. It, it did seem um, a little surface level. Again, I think because it's meant to be a pop culture book, it was quite short. Like I couldn't believe I was done it when yeah. it was. Yeah. I was kind of left thirsting for more. But yeah, I, I I have to say I I actually do recommend that people read this book if they're interested in projects because um, I think there's going to be some of the examples that you you don't know. Um, I think it's ultimately flawed um, in its discussion of some of these projects, especially the nuclear ones, because um, Fluberg seems to just take it as a given that because nuclear power, um, uh, well, should we talk a little bit about his formulation of fat tails versus thin tails? Yeah, and normal um, distribution bias. Yeah, let's yeah. Do that. So basically, we we assume that things tend to fall into a normal distribution. And uh, for instance, the height of human human beings, and you have you, you have people who are taller than others, uh, but basically they fall uh, on a normal <laughs> distribution. And you know we've got tall nuclear right here, <laughs> but but uh, you know uh, Chris is taller than most people, but he's not like ten times 
Uh, no, I'm three standard deviations off. Yeah. Three standard deviations, three standard deviation. And, and you're not like three times taller, right? Um, but yeah. if you, if you take somebody who's like three standard deviation away in terms of wealth or something, then all of a sudden you can, you can get somebody who's like much, much wealthier than the average person. And he calls that the fat tail. And um, when it comes to uh, all these mega projects that blow out their budget, um, there's a fat tail, meaning if they go way over budget, then it, 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 they don't go over by like a little. They go, they go over, they have the potential to like almost just limitless um, downside. Um, and in terms of fat tail project, he, it, it's true if you look at his chart, although we, we can't see in his model, like like. It's proprietary, apparently, but um, nuclear power is is up there. But you know, it's it's flanked by both sides, by IT on one side, and the Olympics on the other side. So I really don't understand why Flubert's conclusion is basically that nuclear power is just hopeless. Whereas he's not. I I don't see how we can avoid building. There's some things that we just need. We need IT. We need the Olympics. We need to figure out how to do those big projects. Exactly. How to do them well. What's the secret sauce for sure? And and I think he, you know, and especially in his post promoting the book, um, basically says that, you know, nuclear uh, just is not doable. Um, and he, he's not looking, you know, not just at the exceptions to the rule, but I mean, this is, again, something that fascinates me that in country over country, um, nuclear has been done well for maybe a decade or two. Um, starting in the U.S. in the 60s, you know, amazing economic quick builds. Uh, Pickering, um, our first large can-do station here, eight reactors under budget, under time. Uh, France, um, you know, ha- did quite well. Japan, South Korea, I don't want to name them all, but but there's a, there's a, a, a track record of success, which, again, the, the um, database is proprietary, but I do feel like it's being skewed by recent builds, um, such as the EPRs in Europe um, and, uh, and Vogel. Um, you know, th- there's another point in his, in his book, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but he talks about the need to think right to left. So to really establish what are your goals? And I think the example is, um, the Danes, uh, his homeland wanting to connect an Island to the mainland, um, and assuming it should be a tunnel for instance. Um, and just, you know, to have that, that thought in the early stage to take a long time planning and to act quickly, plan slow, act fast, uh, act fast, but you know, maybe it's better served by, you know, uh, a bridge, maybe best served by an airport, maybe best served just by a Zoom link, um, you know, that we need to we need to think of these things. And I think that was, um, you know, his kind of conclusion on the energy front is that because wind and solar um, have a very uh, like basically no tendency towards fat, fat tails, um, really, you know, the best modern construction project in terms of being built on budget and on time are wind and solar. And I guess we'll talk about some of the reasons behind that. Um, but that that's what we should do. And I think that's a real failure on his part to consider the goal. Um, and if the goal is deep decarbonization, if the goal is ultra reliable electricity to electrify everything, um, in, you know, if the goal is, um, you know, a just transition, et cetera, um, we need to look at what that is. And, you know, my, my example in my, my tweet, um, dissecting the book was, you know, it's very easy to make bicycles. We can bang those things out in a factory. We can put them on a production line, mass produce them. Um, but if our goal is to move freight, um, it might be better to build a locomotive and a railroad. Um, ultimately it's going to be a more complicated construction project. It's going to take longer, uh, but the payoff's going to be bigger. And I think, I think it is a decent comparison between wind and solar and nuclear. Um, 
you know, bicyclists have to take breaks. If the weather's really bad, they might not be able to ride if it's pitch black outside, <laughs> if they need to stop to eat three times a day. Um, <clears throat> it's one I've used before, but I, I think it's apt. And I think that's ultimately where the book kind of falls flat in its conclusions, because I agree there's there's a lot of value in some of the other projects he discusses and not being a huge architecture buff. I mean, I still have an appreciation for it. But this idea that um, the construction is the only element um, rather than the end goal, despite him saying otherwise, um, yeah, I, I guess I'd, I'd leave the rant there. I would just like to add that the complexity goes somewhere. So let's say, yeah, it is easier to construct a solar panel array than a nuclear power plant, but because uh, they don't produce energy on a steady baseload basis, now you are faced with figuring out how to add enough um, grid balancing storage in order to deliver a steady stream of electricity. So you think you're reducing uh, the complexity of your construction projects, but, but no, because you need the grid to deliver all the time. You're actually adding complexity and worse than adding complexity, you're adding unknowns because his other big heuristic is that we should do what he calls right to left thinking, what you were talking about earlier, which is you start with what is your goal? Always go back to what is your goal? Don't get suckered into starting something just to start something. Think about your uh, ultimate goal, then you can be creative and outside the box in how you accomplish that goal, right? But if you're doing this thing where you're just like building a bunch of wind and solar and your goal is not actually make a bunch of electricity, but deliver a steady stream of electricity, uh, now you're you're not doing right to left thinking. In fact, you're just committing to this mega project that you don't even know what would work. I don't think anybody knows that, uh, you know, 100 uh, percent variable um, electricity uh, grid would work. It's progress, but we don't know where it's going to take us. For sure. And I think that that leads him to, and it's understandable he has this bias of like, well, what can we construct? Well, let's do that. Um, but I think that is that is a kind of fatal flaw. So, I mean, for him, the challenge I would pose to him is um, just do the mental exercise to say that nuclear is necessary. Um, let's study that and figure out how that big thing can get done. And I guess on that theme, why don't we, um, why don't we shift over a little bit to discussing I think probably the most memorable part of the book, which is uh, this comparison to the Sydney Opera House and the Guggenheim Museum and how they were different. Um, and the Frank Gehry approach, Frank, Frank Gehry is the architect, architect and firm, which again has consistently delivered on budget and on time, these fantastical buildings all over the world. Um, why don't you describe a little bit that Frank Gehry process and we can see whether there's been nuclear builds that um, are doing something similar or what the nuclear industry may be yeah. learn from it. Yeah, I, I, you know, maybe maybe we could we, we might be mentioning them by the onesies and twosies. But Chris, uh, should we go through what all of his heuristics are, and then maybe we can apply them to a new nuclear project? Um, so, uh, base it starts off with understanding your odds. If you don't know what your odds are, uh, you won't win. His next heuristic: uh, plan slow, act fast. I thought this was quite a quite a um, good point, which is that um, uh, planning is essentially costless. Um, and uh, but once you start executing, then you get into potentially expensive trouble. Uh, a really good example of this is, say, if you have a, a film production that's um, in the planning stage as the COVID pandemic struck, 
uh, you're fine. Your, your project is in hibernation. You wait and wait it out and then you pick it up again. But if you started shooting and the COVID pandemic struck, all of a sudden it's an expensive disaster. You've got all these actors, you've got all these staff. Um, so that's basically, you know, he's like biased towards doing a ton of planning. Um, we talked about thinking right to left, and that just means starting with your goal. And then you identify the steps that you need to get there. Um, the next one is, which we also <laughs> talked about a little bit, um, he calls find your Lego. And that means that he believes that big is best built from small. And I do believe that if you can do it and still achieve your goal, then you're sure that makes a lot of sense. This is um, the thinking I think is, is quite pervasive. You know, you find your the smallest unit and then you make it repeatable and you have your learning and you do it faster and faster. Um, be a team maker. You want to uh, succeed without an us. I think that that's pretty well known everywhere. And uh, master the unknown unknowns. Um, so uh, that is basically like there's no um, there's no substitute for um, experience. And um, I think um, we 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 call it like implicit tacit knowledge. It's just like you can you can learn things. Um, you can learn like explicit pieces of knowledge, passing it on in textbooks. Um, in training, but then there are things that are more intuitive that only come through experience. Um, uh, we've seen that a lot in nuclear power plants, and he uses this word I like a lot, which is called phrenesis, and uh, that is that concept is um, basically basically kind of like kind of practical wisdom um, that has to be learned through experience. And uh, so he, he's basically like these are the heuristic for determining how mega projects um, can beat the odds and be successful. So maybe from we can apply those to a nuclear project. Yeah, or, or maybe, again, I'm, I keep going back to the Guggenheim, but I, I think Frank Gehry is, you know, he's, he's referenced in the book a number, number of times. And, I mean, just a few things that stood out for me. Obviously, he's, he's got a very well-established team about him. Um, and his team goes with him to each project in terms of the key engineers, yes. structural people. Um, in terms of their methodology, again, these bizarrely shaped buildings with lots of curves. They actually got the software from the airline industry um, where fuselages have a lot of uh, structural issues not being boxes and squares that they're solved with this technology. And I mean, I think that's also why the Olympics tend to go over is because it's an economic development project. You contract local people to do it, but this is an event that you've probably never done before in your city or maybe the last time was a generation ago. Um, that sounds pretty reminiscent of a lot of uh, new nuclear builds in the West. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. One can, one can imagine that the Olympic Committee might, you know, have this dream team of people that would go city to city, but that that just doesn't make enough sense. Uh, Frank Gehry is able to do that and and pull off these these buildings. Um, you know, the think right to left. I think when he went to um, uh, the Basque Country, uh, Bilbao, um, they wanted him to renovate a warehouse, and he kind of did some thinking and identified more of what their goals were. That this was really to be an iconic building to kickstart their tourism industry. And so proposed the site and, you know, was really good at that. Um, you know, the planning, they do, I think, a ton of iterative planning, lots of drawings, using the software to model it out, make sure they figured out all the structural issues. And the comparison with the Sydney Opera House was fascinating, right? Because it sounded like yeah. the design process there was like essentially a back of the envelope sketch of these, you know, these beautiful wing shapes 
Um, and this, this architect had never built anything before in his life. And then they had to sort of move backwards from there and figure out how to construct those shapes. And in the end, they learned that acoustically, the place is a nightmare for opera. Um, so the contrast, <laughs> that's hilarious. The um, contrast was, yeah. was, was very cool there, but I'm not sure if there's any other, you know, tidbits from Frank Gehry or if you want to move on to sort of, you know, how well, to apply those I actually solutions. think that it's a great way to talk about how we apply to nuclear because I think in, in many ways, Frank Gehry's building, it's highly complex structure and he, it, it, it is like a nuclear power plant. And I think your comparison of the Sydney Opera House with Voltal and, uh, um, Frank Gehry's building with um, with uh, Baraka, which is the um, nuclear power plants that the Koreans recently built um, in ten years in a country that didn't have nuclear before. Um, it, the the parallels are right there, and we know from 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 the Barakas of the world and from the French nuclear build out that it's not impossible to build nuclear on time and on budget, and to also to deliver way more benefits than we thought we were going to get since it turns out nuclear power plants are practically immortal and you can just keep extending their lifetimes, you know, from 40 years, which we expected up to 60, 80 years now. So all those things are possible and it's a matter of actually applying um, Professor Fluberg's tools, the tools that he came up in his own book, Two nuclear power plants, and I think if had he truly appreciated the value that nuclear power plants actually bring to our energy systems, maybe he wouldn't have been so dismissive and just assumed that well, maybe we shouldn't build them because they're 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 not Legos because they're high risk. I, I imagine building like one of a kind fantastical museums is also high risk, right? I mean, it's got to be in terms of the kind of shapes, sizes, bizarre stuff that they're doing, you know. That's, you know, not utilitarian, but again, it, it has an aesthetic purpose. It, it draws the crowds. There's a value proposition to it. I, th- I think the analogy is is really strong. And so, um, you know, he did uh, reply to my Twitter thread. He said, read the book. You don't understand. <laughs> I had read yeah, the book. I, yeah, I we- talked to his co-author for an hour. Um, anyway, um, I, I do think that his anti-nuclear priors are probably getting in the way of a very interesting exploration, very analogous, uh, you know, as you said, to the Sydney Opera House and, and the Guggenheim. You know, on the um, find your Lego element, um, you know, we had a you had a great summary, actually, of my interview with Tony Rollstone. Um, it was on SMRs and economics. Um, and of course, you know, we want to modularize and do in a factory as much as we can. And, you know, his suggestion was, you know, currently maybe we're at 20 percent modularization. Um, and if we can bump that up to 50 or 60, that's going to be very beneficial. Um, I think that Something that frustrates me um, with nuclear in the West is, um, and, and something that's a valuable contribution from the book, is just this understanding of how goddamn hard it is, right? That 95, 99% of mega projects don't deliver on budget, on time, or the value proposition. Um, and so I think if the nuclear industry in the West starts with that, and with this utter humility and utmost respect from the Frank Gehrys, the, you know, the Koreans um, with their APR 1400s, uh, maybe where the Chinese are at now and they're well, Halong one or the, the Russians with the VVR, you know, if we start with, let's figure out what works. Um, let's be humble that, you know, frankly, we're not, we've proven ourselves not to be good at this or we have a lot of catch up to do. Then we have a greater chance. Maybe our Lego is the gigawatt scale nuclear power plant. Because if you think about it, sure, you, there's a lot of on-site work. Sure. It's not made in a factory, but if you look at 
how the French did it. Something that's almost the same as Legos. Uh, I've heard it described as a cookie cutter approach. You don't change anything about your plan. You get don't get tempted into design upgrades, or you don't fuss about to increase efficiency by ten percent. You just do it the same way because that's the way you know how to do it. You get a lot of you get a lot of、um, efficiency and savings and learnings from that. And、um, I forgot, like they built fifty something nuclear power plants in. In span of two decades or something like that, and they're still working to this day.、Um, so uh, maybe the the、um, lesson should be: go big or go home. If maybe if you do a France, you have a more of a chance of of succeeding than if you just build build them in the onesies and the twosies. I don't know. I, I think maybe it could be sort of a Lego versus Duplo.、Um, Duplo, you know, for the non parents out there, just really much bigger blocks. <laughs>、um, But you know, like if if there's enough of a societal impetus and a need to build a lot of, say, electricity generation, I think the French, you know, there was a, a factory that was pounding out in shoes, I believe, or shalous, eight、um, reactor pressure vessels every single year. So they'd scaled things up to、wow. the extent that that was modular.、Um, obviously, if you're just building one EPR every twenty years, the scaling isn't there because you know you haven't mobilized your entire industrial base around a sufficient number of projects for there to be learning and replication. Um, and building multiple units on the same site, for instance, and you know, in that way, like what we've been seeing in the West、um, is really stagnating、um, uh, demand for electricity. So it's it makes sense that there hasn't there just simply hasn't been the financing there to build, you know, to continue, say, the legacy in Ontario of building eight unit nuclear plants、uh, because investors want to know is there going to be someone to buy this electricity and pay off your debt to us? And there hasn't been, you know, maybe with the climate imperative and electrification, we're going to see that again. Um, and that will allow us to go big, as you're saying, but also, you know, be able to learn, do things in sequence, etc.、Um, but it's challenging. I wanted to talk to you a little bit because obviously you have a big background in offshore wind. Yeah. And so, and something that they talk about is that you know, wind and solar. Why are they so easy to construct? So why don't you give us your reflections on that? I'm not sure. I think you were getting your certification to go out to like physically be on these offshore wind platforms. Have you? I, I haven't gotten an opportunity to do that yet.、Um, But basically,、um, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask on this because Taiwan's offshore wind development is actually running into some issues、uh, with a lot of the cost overruns and、um, lack of left-to-right thinking. And、um, I think a very important point that he makes well is、uh, how localization can really hurt you.、Um, so basically, the Taiwanese government made the strategic、um, blunder, in my opinion. Of、um, asking that a bunch of the offshore wind components be made in Taiwan, these are huge, like absolutely enormous jackets, tower pieces, blades, nacelles. So、um, we are now building the most expensive offshore wind farms in the world now in Taiwan, and a number of them are way, way behind budget. And it's definitely not the kind of nice, clean.、Um, Nice, clean,、uh, cost-down curve that you see in、um, some of the other. I think, especially the solar projects, have、uh, cost down really, really convincingly.、Um, but I, in my opinion,、um, uh, I don't see、um, wind as continuing that、uh, cost-down trajectory. I think at some point,、um, 
especially with commodity prices and inflation like this. Um, we've, we've seen in the news um, all these turbine manufacturers like Vestas and uh, Siemens Gamesa, they're not making money. They're losing, in fact, a huge amount of money. Um, the vessel owners are bleeding. Developers aren't making much. So, um, uh, like I said, I could only talk about my own per- personal professional experience. Um, but I think at, at some point, um, we're not going to keep costing down forever. Uh, but interestingly, people accept that. People accept that, okay, you know, we will have to, let's say we've exploited all the easy sites and we need to push out into the ocean, into the um, water so deep that we have to have a floating foundation. All these uh, Eiffel Tower-sized wind turbines have to float now. Wow. Um, yeah, and so it's definitely going to be more expensive. There will be a cost-down journey, but it will probably never be as cheap as bottom-fixed offshore wind turbines um, just because floating is going to be more expensive. Yeah. So um, we, we accept that because I think floating wind, the value proposition is it, it is a little bit more stable. The winds are a little bit stronger with larger turbines also come strength. Um, I don't, I don't know. And, and stability, uh, you, you get to tap into the, into the air currents that are a little bit higher up. Um, the, but there's a awareness of trade-off and that's, that's what I ask for nuclear is like people, people are, um, you know, acknowledge that it, it's, it's, uh, the stability is, is good. No, I mean, I think that's interesting to approach, um, the Taiwanese experience anyway. And I mean, I think it's starting to be replicated. Uh, Gamisa Siemens um, apparently have no orders. That's in the a global quarter. problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of Taiwan, and we had a great episode with you on Taiwan, um, where you were sketching out some of the uh, energy dynamics there, um, and this kind of virtual blockade of Taiwan that could occur simply from China buying up all the available um, liquefied natural gas um, cargoes, um, particularly as as Taiwan heads in to shutting down its nuclear plants. Um, uh, and- not not so much buying up because we do have long term contracts that are twenty five right. years. Um, what what I noticed was um, uh, during Nancy Pelosi's visit, they were just like, "Well, you know, uh, missiles might fall out of the sky here, 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 here," and it totally disrupted um, commercial traffic. It's like oh, a ghost blockade. Right. Cool. Cool. Well, let's not get too sidetracked on the on the Taiwan uh, side of things, um, but. Um, yeah, let's 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 dive back into the book. Um, what else did you find um, interesting in terms of we've we've been heavy on the critiques here? Um, some other some other positives or things that you took from it that you enjoyed? I think you the the thing that I one of the most um, valuable things and so true to my experience is a misalignment of incentives between the people trying to push the project through and the actual interest of. The, the greater unit, be it the country or the company or whatever. There's a misalignment of incentives. And I think Zuberg describes so well that um, for for the people who are trying to get the project started, sometimes you just want to spend enough money that um, the, <laughs> the real decision makers can't take it away from you because you've already, right. it would be too embarrassing, right? And I don't think he used this, Example in the book, actually, but it jumped out at me. It reminded me of, um, I think, the Wachowski, um, now sisters, when they shot The Matrix, they blew their initial budget on on that cool initial scene with the bullets frozen in space and people fighting around the frozen bullet. 
And that's it. They spent the whole budget for the movie on that. And then they went back to the studio and say, well, this is what we did. Are you going to give us more money? And at, the, right. at that point, you know, um, and I think that happens a lot. And po- why do politicians overpromise? It's because they want to secure their political legacy. Why do executives um, overpromise? Because they, they know that if that project gets started, um, then good things will come to them. And um, a lot of the times that's that's how it works out or you know, if, if you're too responsible, those big projects don't get done. And so you have these um, probably o- way too over arrogant people and, you know, they just do whatever it takes to get it through. Well, I guess going back a little bit to the plan slow, act fast component, um, I had a really fascinating tour uh, recently in Ontario Um you know, we're doing these can-do refurbishments, um, which, you know, buy us another 30 to 40 years of life out of our, our, our can-do units, which will go into their 70s and 80s. Um, so really exciting. But it is complex work. Uh, for those who have been following me on Twitter, you're probably seeing a few diagrams posted of can-dos. Um, the truly modular core reactor, you know, with 480 pressure tubes, each of those needs to be changed out. There's a pipe fitting on either side. Um, so a 900 and my math is that bad right now. I'm tired. 960 tubes coming in. It's a lot of work, really complex. The tolerances are down to thousandths of an inch and obviously has the potential to be disastrous. I'm sure Bent would look at that and go, oh my God. But something I think he'd really appreciate, um, and this is what I got to visit, was this mock-up. They spent something like $60 million building this big warehouse and a life-sized can-do reactor, calandria, um, with the pressure tubes in place. Um, with a bunch of manufacturing right there on site to do tooling and, and everything laid out perfectly. You know, they'd use lasers to capture the exact dimensions um, and for workers to practice before they go into the reactor vault where there might be some limitations in terms of dosing to get in and out quickly. Um, <clears throat> and the payback had just been absolutely enormous. Um, but it was it was really neat to see this uh, in, in real life. You know, a lot of nuclear reactors are a bit of a mystery to folks that are not nuclear engineers, just seeing all the containment around them, but having that stripped away and being able to look into this pretty small physical space, like the, uh, the Calandria vessel where all the pressure tubes go through, I'm trying to find a good comparator for it. I mean, it's certainly smaller than, I don't know, the second floor of my house here. And it's providing 5% of the power of the entire province. Like you saw the power density there. I'm going off on, on track here a little bit, but, um, that whole, you know, again, planning, planning, planning. And we are going to have Gary Rose, who's um, head of new nuclear OPG and, and really um, was a lot of the brains behind making these refurbishments go so well. Um, he's going to be on the podcast soon to, to discuss that. Um, but a neat illustration. And I, I'd love to bring Bent or, <laughs> or Dan uh, Gardner, his co-writer, to, to come and check out that facility because I think it really speaks to what they're talking about and is the reason why. Um, you know, our, our refurbishments are coming in um, under budget and ahead of schedule. Um, you know, they found a process just in terms of the tacit knowledge as well. You can gain that tacit knowledge even in a rehearsal space like this, but they figured out um, they could take out two things at once essentially during this refurb and they cut a month off their schedule, which is, you know, just enormous. Um, so those examples are out there. They're happening in the nuclear industry. And, you know, it's kind of what makes me really bullish about um, nuclear in Canada is that we have a lot of of the ingredients and we have really an experienced industry um, that is pulling off mega projects really well right now. Um, so I'm going to stop tooting my Ontarian horn here. But well, I, but I think it just goes to show that 
um, Bent isn't wrong in his heuristics, and he's chosen good examples to illustrate them, and they fit pretty well to the nuclear industry, both in terms of its failures and its success. Um, I just think that uh, he's perhaps a little bit just too fixed in his um, in his belief that um, somehow um, wind and solar and nuclear are interchangeable things, and that you can if you can build uh, wind and nuclear so easily, you can give up on nuclear. Uh, sorry, wind and solar so easily, you can give up on nuclear. And I just don't think that's a true assumption. But I, I'm I'm tremendously excited by um, this kind of thinking being out there. You know, thinking about how you know meta learning, learning about how to learn, build. You know, learning about how to build in a in a very um, like he would say um, outsider thinking. You know, trying to take yourself outside of your assumptions and addressing your projects. And um, I I would like to uh, actually um, talk about a. Um, so some of his fellow Danes. Uh, so I went to visit Copenhagen Atomics um, in um, Copenhagen, duh. Um, and they do molten salt reactors. And uh, they, Denmark is actually, um, doesn't allow, there's actually a, a law against nuclear power. So how do they manage to build a startup involving small modular molten salt reactors? And actually they just do, as much as they can without the radioactivity. They build it, they test the salt, they control for the corrosion. Um, they make sure all those systems are working. They build up, they have a lot of engineering work done. And then they use a lot of digital twins work. So that's kind of reminiscent of, um, you know, the Pixar or the Frank Gehry example, where it's like using as much mock-ups as possible. And they hope that, in this way, they can still do the iteration and the fast design and the um, kind of constant testing of your concept in an engineering fashion, um, but without but without the radioactivity. Of course, that approach will only get them so far. At some point, you need to introduce the radioactivity. Um, but I think that's something that that's it's a very refreshing line of thinking. And um, I, I hope that it'll yield food in the future. So they have a physical warehouse and they have mock-ups, um, you know, made out of yeah. real-world materials. Yeah. And well, then- here's the thing. With molten salt, a huge part of the challenge is actually controlling for the fact that it's it's extremely corrosive. So figuring out how to do that part, um, they can do without the without the radioactivity. Right, right. Um, of course, that's going to make it worse, but um, then they have digital twins and stuff like that. And um, uh, yeah, I'm. hopefully um, they, they've established a branch in the UK where they will be, once they get through the um, licensing process, um, they will be able to one day work with um, actual radioactivity. Right, that's really exciting. Cool, well, I think um, I think we can make it a shorter one today unless there's other any other kind of key points that you wanted to explore at all no no i i would just say that i i still think the the book is you know very worth reading and um i think we as nuclear um nuclear advocates can can feel good that um 
even though it's more challenging um, than a lot of other things, there are, in fact, tremendous space for improvement in nuclear projects um, if, we can, if we can apply a lot of these um, principles um, that um, are in the book. What's your what's your score out of ten here? Let's let's. <laughs> well, uh, I, I I think I think this book is pretty good. I'm, I'm gonna give it a solid eight out of ten. All right, all right. And uh, and you? Uh, I'm lower. I'm kind of like a, maybe a six and a half. And I, I, I got, think you, you know what? Probably... I think you're mad. I think you're mad totally, at totally. how badly say. he railroaded. I think I don't think Chris. I don't think you can make a a judgment that's. That separates the fact I, that he did railroad nuclear in the I, I was book gonna, from the fact that <laughs> I was going to provide a qualifier that there's probably a minus two just associated with that. But no, I mean, you know, in, in real terms, I, I do try and um, check that bias and that frustration. Um, I did feel like it was a little too shallow, a little too pop culture. It's quite a short uh-huh. book, uh, a little gimmicky. Yes. Um, but the strongest parts were definitely some of the narratives around um, the different kind of projects. And we didn't really talk about the Pixar as much in detail, but you know, just having watched a few shows recently and your jaw just drops, like how did they not see this in inconsistency or maybe they didn't care about it. I'm a nitpicker, right? Especially when I see anything medical that's <laughs> they've completely botched, but in, in, in sort of hearing that Pixar process of really, you know, starting with an idea, like a grumpy old man, um, and then fleshing that out into a story and, and creating a sort of a storyboard and getting tons of peer review. Um, that was a really kind of compelling process. So, you know, I think, Looking beyond just um, nuclear and being like the nerd that I am, I, I can see some real value in the book. Maybe I'll bump it up to a seven. Well, good. Um, I, yeah, definitely um, read it. I th- and I think the disagreement is actually good. I think we need to get fired up um, about uh, our process here. And uh, yeah, that that that's all for the book. Um, I just like to add that um, I am going to be starting the Substack um, with a pipeline of different articles. So, if you have some subjects um, that you'd like to me to report on, just just let me know. Write write to me at, uh, at on the decouple DM are open, and uh, um, I'm off to investigate. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Okay, folks, uh, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back with some more content next week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.